Welcome to your New Mexico government. I'm your host, Kaleole Kaloda. The special legislative session is set to begin tomorrow, and the governor, along with state legislators, are preparing to work out some holes in the budget. But that's not the only issue at hand. By now, you may have heard about the shooting incident during a demonstration at the Albuquerque Museum on Monday night. Executive producer Marisa DeMarco was there. I talked to her about what she saw and how it felt. She also spoke with Mayor Tim Keller hours before the demonstration about his plan to roll out a new community safety department. We have an interview with City Council member Pat Davis, and I talk with Jeff Proctor from the Santa Fe Reporter about prisoners, race, and COVID, and what we can expect in the legislative session. All that coming up, but first, KUNM's Nash Jones has a news update of what we know today, Wednesday, June 17th, as of 5 p.m. The capital of China has reinstated a partial lockdown after seeing a resurgence of coronavirus cases this week. The New York Times reports Beijing hadn't had a new reported case for 56 days until this Monday and are now seeing dozens. Here in the U.S., nine states saw record high cases of COVID-19 yesterday. The Washington Post reports our neighbors Arizona, Texas, and Oklahoma, along with Oregon, Nevada, Alabama, Florida, North Carolina, and South Carolina, either saw their highest single day of new cases or set a record for week-long averages. This is Vice President Mike Pence penned an opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal yesterday titled, There Isn't a Coronavirus Second Wave, in which he told the nation the U.S. is, quote, winning the fight against the virus and that concerns over a resurgence as much of the country begins to reopen is, quote, overblown. Meanwhile, NPR reports former Atlanta police officer Garrett Rolfe, who shot and killed Rayshard Brooks in a Wendy's parking lot on Friday, has been charged with felony murder and aggravated assault with the deadly weapon. Rolf faces 11 total charges. Here in New Mexico, the Albuquerque Journal reports District Attorney Raul Torres announced today that Stephen Ray Baca, who shot and critically injured a protester in Old Town Albuquerque during a demonstration to take down a statue of a Spanish conquistador there, is no longer facing shooting charges of aggravated battery. Instead, Baca has been charged with unlawful carrying of a firearm and battery against several other protesters. The DA says charges could be refiled by the New Mexico State state police who have taken the investigation over because of the Albuquerque Police Department's handling of it, which according to the journal, Torres called, quote, fundamentally incomplete. Meanwhile, the special legislative session begins in Santa Fe tomorrow. The Santa Fe New Mexican reports Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham has released the agenda, which, in addition to central state spending matters amid a budgetary shortfall, includes requests for the legislature to take up issues of mandatory police body cams and a statewide police chokehold ban. The AP reports leading GOP state lawmakers say they don't plan to block either of the two police reform measures. State officials announced today that New Mexico has surpassed 10,000 coronavirus cases with 138 new cases reported today with five additional deaths related to COVID-19. That brings the total death toll in the state to 452. For your New Mexico government, I'm Nash Jones. On Monday night at the Albuquerque Museum, a man was shot at a demonstration about the removal of the Don Juan Onyate statue. KUNM and other news outlets had reporters on the ground documenting what they saw. YNMG executive producer Marisa DeMarco was one of the journalists there. I talked to her about what happened and the personal impact it had on her. We pick up our conversation in progress. 
so I got there and there had already been a couple hours of a peaceful candlelight vigil in which people talked about the long history of that statue and how painful it was and how they'd fought for it not to be put up at the museum in the first place almost 20 years ago. After that, there's maybe like, I don't know, 50, 75 people who were then on the statue And when I got there, I don't know that they were really trying to pull it down yet. And so they're, you know, just kind of standing there on the hill. And um, the New Mexico Civil Guard is there. And so the Civil Guard is, you know, wearing military-like gear and face masks and holding these big guns. And the demonstrators were saying to them that they wanted them to go home. Some of them were saying that the Civil Guard was you know menacing or scary and they didn't want them there and so this kind of shouting and back and forth is going on and on and I think maybe there's a little bit of shoving or pushing at this point but really nothing it was really not much beyond kind of arguing and and yelling was it did it seem like uh, both sides were kind of posturing to each other I mean it definitely seemed volatile on both sides Mm -hmm. right I mean maybe not volatile on both sides it definitely seemed tense And so the situation just is getting, is really escalating, getting louder, right? Then I'm just standing there, I'm standing pretty close, and this guy, uh, Stephen Baca, I didn't know who he was at the time, he yanks this woman down who's right in front of me. Her, Her head hits the pavement really hard, and it's right in front of my feet. And on her way down, she knocked my recorder out of my hands. And I only say that um, for context of like time, right? So the recorder smashes to the ground and it's in a couple different pieces. The protesters are trying to get her to hold her head and neck still because it really looked like she was injured. She looked kind of dazed to me. And I'm just kind of trying to grab all the pieces of my recorder and put it back together. As I'm crouched down doing that, I hear four gunshots. I couldn't see the shooting because I was crouched down and there's like some people and legs between me and and the line of sight. I go towards the gunshots and I was really hoping that it was more of this thing that happens near demonstrations where we hear gunshots and it's often people who are just firing in the air or sometimes it's firecrackers, right? So I'm, I'm really hoping it's something like that. And then I just really hear a lot of people screaming with alarm. So I get through the crowd of people and I can see that there's somebody laying in the street. And um, as I get closer, I realize that it's actually a good friend of mine and that he's been shot. Um, So what did you do next? I, uh, I went over, I went over to him. He was surrounded by protest medics who were pushing their hands on his bullet wounds to, you know, to try to stop the blood flow. And I called his name. I said, it's Marisa, it's Marisa. And I was calling his name. I was close. I was kind of kneeling near him. And I just wanted to see if he could respond or understand me at that point. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and so was he able to? Yeah, he looked, he looked, he caught my eye and he nodded, you know, he couldn't talk, but yeah, he just let me know that he understood that I was there. Outside of the, you know, the posturing and a little bit of pushing and shoving, the real beginnings of the physical altercation and uh, the physical violence started when he pulled this young woman to the ground. 
there has since been videos showing that moment. He really, he like throws her to the ground, kind of or yanks her to the ground or something, just sharp and hard, and she just just smacks her head, you know? I'm going to get back to the police reaction. Mm. You say the police came in with riot gear, almost riot formation in an armored car and, and uh, projectiles. What did they do next? Did the police push back the protesters and the people? Did they try to secure the crime scene? There was definitely a lot of confusion. Like the protesters, some of them were walking towards the police with their hands up because they're pointing towards my friend who was on the ground. People are free to express their First Amendment rights while people are also free to express their Second Amendment rights. And it seems like those two freedoms are coming to a head. What would you like to see from our elected officials and law enforcement in terms of preventing these type of situations going on before, but also knowing that they're in this delicate dance between our our first two rights, according to the Constitution? What about my friend's right to be alive? What about my friend's right to protest, right? What about his rights to freedom of speech? What about the demonstrators' rights to attend a protest and not experience violence, right? What about those rights? You know, we can talk about First Amendment and Second Amendment, and those are so important in preserving our freedoms, but, you know, violence, violence, we, we all have the right to, to exist. Well, we happen to have a radio show where we can talk to public officials about these type of things. <laughs> I look forward to having these conversations in the future. I want to thank you for taking time to explain it, not only to me, but our audience, as uh, it's been on everyone's mind, ears and mouth for the last day, over two days, mm. people have been talking about this. Thank you very much for the work that you're doing and your courage that you're showing. I, I deeply appreciate it. Thank you, Kalia. I appreciate you. Executive producer Marisa DeMarco spoke with Albuquerque Mayor Tim Keller and the city's chief administrative officer, Sarita Nair, about his push to create a third kind of 911 responder. Here's Keller talking about why he thinks this will help reduce the load on police and bad interactions with police. Well, you know, I think maybe we'll just start out by mentioning that, you know, we've been looking at a public health model for responding to different community needs for a couple of years. And we've been piloting it in a lot of different ways. And I think what we've come to realize is that we actually need to make a fundamental shift in how we respond to community needs. And it's going to require a third department besides police and fire. And that department's got to be unarmed. It's got to be civilians. And they got to be professionally trained to deal with issues like mental health, addiction, homelessness, all of these areas where historically we've just asked everyday officers to step up and solve a huge range of problems. And it hasn't really been effective on the receiving end necessarily. And it's actually also uh, continues to be a tough challenge even for those officers. So this is about a restructuring of literally how we do public safety in the city. And it's about a alternative form of policing that's really about focusing the right response at the right time. We're also hearing a lot of calls to demilitarize police. I know the council has a bill, but we saw during the demonstrations tactical gear, long rifles, armored cars, tear gas, helicopters. It feels militaristic regardless, right? Does your administration have any additional thoughts about further steps that could be taken here in Albuquerque to demilitarize police? 
I think there's also a couple of important distinctions. So there's what the police department has at their disposal, and then there's how they use it. So the helicopter is a great example where a few years ago, one of the biggest concerns about APD was how they engaged in car chases. There were fatalities around that. There were accidents. And the helicopter is a great way to not have to engage in any kind of car chase, right? There's nothing, no impact to traffic on the ground when you have that pursuit through Air One. So that's a place where the community actually sought out more of a, an air support response in reacting to a different kind of problem. So the helicopter we can call a good tool, but then the way that we deploy it, making sure that we're using it only when it's necessary, but making sure we don't use it when we don't need it is part of that demilitarization effort as well. Mayor Keller, do you have any follow-up for that about any additional steps when it comes to this ask that the police be demilitarized? I mean, Sarita covered it thoroughly. Have you given thought to what oversight structure there might be for this new department? So that's something we want to work with the community on and council as we actually craft how this is going to work out. And we know that just like the fire department has various levels of oversight, I mean, every department has different types. And so we have to develop one for this. And that's really what our Office of Equity and Inclusion is going to quarterback in terms of this department. All right. APD officers are responding to thousands of mental health calls each year. So if this new department takes over those calls and the police force is not reduced, how will officers spend their time, do you think? Well, right now we have huge backlogs with respect to call response time. So one is we hope response time goes up because the officers aren't as busy taking these other calls. But the other aspect of this is that hopefully the actual crime goes down because we're addressing some of these upstream root cause challenges. But we also want to have community policing, and that's a very resource-intensive thing. Because the criminal justice system in New Mexico doesn't keep track of racial data, some could argue not at all, but definitely not very well, it's pretty hard for any public official or policymaker to see in specific what the disparities are when it comes to policing, to parole, to the criminal justice system. Do you have any thoughts for changing that potentially here in Albuquerque or even with this new department? So I think for this issue, I really hope that we can either have the state or the county step up in this area because this has been a challenge, as you know, for a long time. And we have all these jurisdictions that, you know, may or may not talk to each other in different ways and share data and so forth. So I know we have a couple of joint committees that we work in uh, the criminal justice system that we set up here in central New Mexico, but they haven't been able to go into data. So I think that is really something that the Criminal Justice Coordinating Council Mm. should really take the lead on this. And even better is if we just make it statewide. But if that doesn't happen, are there thoughts about making it happen here in the city? Well, we certainly would love to. You know, that's a question of, again, we can put in that kind of budget request and so forth. But it's very difficult to do without the county, as you know. I mean, we live in a checkerboard central New Mexico community. There also have long been concerns that, and I'm hearing them again now, that the police oversight board doesn't have any real teeth or sanctioning power and only really makes recommendations to the chief of police. Is there thought to altering that process or how that would play out with this new department? 
You know, we're interested in uh, reforming that process and also in trying to support the oversight board. This is a good example where a community is just in a very somewhat unique place. All of that is controlled by the CASA. So the parties to that and, of course, the judge, really, they have to decide on any changes to the POB. All right. Well, thank you all very much for your time this afternoon. I appreciate it. Thanks. Take care. That was Albuquerque Mayor Tim Keller and City CAO Sarita Nair speaking with executive producer Marisa DeMarco hours before Monday night's Onyate statue demonstration. This is Your NM Government. I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're covering life during the pandemic and how what's happening affects all of us differently. Tune in Wednesday through Friday at 7 p.m. here on KUNM or find every episode anywhere you get your podcasts. How do you feel about people who show up to watch protests with rifles? Does it create more tension in already tense times? We want to hear about it. Call up our hotline, leave a message, and we will interview you. Call 505-218-7084 or email yournmgov at gmail.com. The special session starts tomorrow. Who better to have to break it down than our good friend, Jeff Proctor from the Santa Fe Reporter. Jeff, thanks for being with me. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's just start off. Since the start of the pandemic, you know, there have been many fears around an outbreak in a prison and we're starting to see more infections. Tell me, what are we looking at and why is this a concern for everybody and not just the people behind bars? Well, in terms of what we're looking at, I mean, every day there are more cases in the Otero County Prison Facility down south. It's now more than half of the inmate population or right around half. We're also starting to see infections creep north into other prison facilities and jail facilities. And of course we are. They're trying to make room down in Otero County to house people who are sick. So they're having to move folks out of there, transfer them to other facilities. And the gubernatorial administration continues to take an incredibly conservative approach to inmate release. The concern, of course, in terms of how this impacts our communities, people are released from prison every day on parole because they have completed their sentences. And if they have picked up an infection, they're going to take that and spread it in their home. They're going to take that and spread it in the transitional living facility. The other worry, of course, are corrections officers and staff. They go in and out of those prisons every day. Anytime you have a situation like this, people tend to think of it as isolated in that building. It's not. That building exists in our communities. For months, there's been calls to let nonviolent offenders out. The governor said they were going to do something, but it still really hasn't happened. you have any idea what the holdup is? The administration has not particularly forcefully offered a clear-eyed explanation, although in a piecemeal fashion, they have offered an explanation that sort of leans toward, well, we don't have any place to send these folks. And I would encourage listeners to stand by for um, a story I'll be publishing at New Mexico in depth that examines that claim sometime in the next couple of days. Okay, I look forward to that. Now, the governor has advocated for legalizing marijuana fully. It is decriminalized across the state now, but a lot of people who are in prison right now are there for marijuana possession. How does that play into conversations we're having around race and criminal justice in the state and the release of people who are nonviolent offenders with this COVID-19 outbreak? So that was the focus of my bigger story last week. And really, that was to lay down these positions the governor has staked out next to her approach 
to releasing prison inmates during the pandemic, and then to mix in some data that we were finally able to arm wrestle away from the corrections department. And here's what we learned. First thing we were able to get were some demographic data. The corrections department's not required to collect these data, and often it's simply a guess. They're not asking the person, how do you identify? And, you know, we know anecdotally from my past reporting that often when the corrections officer is in question about somebody's race or ethnicity, they check the white box. Mm. So what that says is that probably whites are overcounted. Mm-hmm. Black people, Hispanic people and native people are probably undercounted. And even given that reality in the data they provided me, black people are overrepresented in the prison population. So are Hispanic people white people are underrepresented in the prison population. So that's the demographic piece. We were also able to get a breakdown by highest level of offense that somebody is incarcerated for. We've got about a quarter of folks locked up on nonviolent drug offenses. Here's what we don't know. We don't know what substance because the corrections department does not track the information. We do know anecdotally that plenty of those people are in for marijuana possession. So in that story, we were able to kind of examine like, all right, this is a governor who has said during the pandemic that she really wished that cannabis bill had passed. And of course, the cannabis bill did have a section in it that would have allowed for the release of people whose crimes are no longer crimes. And yet here we are with so many of these folks still incarcerated in our prisons and an administration that's taking an incredibly conservative approach to inmate release. The governor created a racial justice council. What kinds of questions do you have about the state and racial justice after reporting so much on New Mexico prisons and COVID? Well, the first thing I want is more comprehensive demographic data of who is in our prisons. It seems to me I should be able to ask my state corrections department, how many black folks do you have serving prison time on marijuana possession charges? I should be able to ask that question and get an answer really quickly. Here's the number. At this time when prisons are hotbeds for the coronavirus, that's sort of question number one. I think a million other questions flow from there. How solitary confinement is used against folks and what their race and ethnicity is. How other kinds of discipline and gang classification and things like that. Those are all questions that I've had for a long time before the pandemic about whether there is disparate treatment behind the walls. And again, those are questions that for now, at least, I can't get answered. Yeah, I see. I see. And finally, you know, the governor was just in Rolling Stone with the piece praising her leadership during the pandemic, but she has not done a one-on-one with a local reporter in a long while. So what ends up missing from the public discourse here in New Mexico when we can't get the governor to do a one-on-one with one of us? Local issues. Yeah. Right? I mean, number one, Rolling Stone doesn't get that interview if they want to talk about local issues happening in New Mexico. They wanted to talk to the governor about her experience as a governor trying to work with a presidential administration that pitted states against one another in terms of trying to get resources for their state. And she speaks really articulately about that struggle and that fight. My sense is that there are a lot of New Mexicans who are grateful for her efforts in terms of trying to advocate for our state. But what's missed there 
if she's not willing to talk to any of the reporters who really focus on the criminal justice issues here in New Mexico, we're, we're going to ask different questions than what Rolling Stone would. Look, I follow local news really closely. I don't remember seeing a bite that comes directly from the governor, not during one of her virtual news conferences with a local reporter. The last one I remember was with KOB sometime back in April. And again, it's totally possible that I missed something, but our readers, our listeners, our viewers, our state are not as well served by that Rolling Stone interview as they would be if the governor were to sit down and talk to somebody who's got a New Mexico beat. He is Jeff Proctor with the Santa Fe Reporter. Thanks again. I'll talk to you very soon, my friend. Take care, Khalil. Thanks for having me. City Council President Pat Davis, who was once a police officer in Washington, D.C., began seeking community input last week about reworking APD's budget in response to calls to defund the police. He spoke with reporter Margaret Wright today. They met in person and were wearing masks, a familiar sound filter for our conversations these days. Some people are conflating property destruction with potential threats of violence. Can you help me help others distinguish those? That's an excellent point. So we have to remember that as a general rule, the city has made a a decision that we're not going to engage with those who are engaged in petty property destruction. And that's for good reason, right? How do you define petty property destruction? For example, we made a decision or the police department made a decision that Sunday night a few weekends ago when we saw the downtown destruction, we're not going to put a police officer in risk to stand between a plate glass window and someone with a skateboard. We'll just let that happen because we can replace that. When the chemo caught on fire, they decided that that was an asset that was important. And if they could secure it, they could prevent that destruction. And so they chose to protect the chemo as best they could because that's a big idea. And what we saw on Monday night was sort of the same. There was a decision to protect the museum. There's millions of dollars of cultural assets that were irreplaceable there. And so that was sort of a line. I think our question is, why not just extend that line to all the assets on the property, including the one that everybody is going to converge upon with different agendas? Because the threat of physical violence, you don't have to shoot somebody, you don't have to to hit somebody in order to be intimidating, in order to have that presence of violence. And that's what the armed groups brought, right? Protesters were, were engaged in physical destruction, but I think had we done some steps to prevent that, we could have de-escalated that as well. But more importantly, by the time you have a situation where folks are bringing guns to a protest, it is violent by nature. Okay, so a number of other cities currently have efforts underway to immediately cut the number of police, mm-hmm. as well as the police budget, by half, redirecting that funding to transformative efforts, such as yep. mental health interventions. Would you support such an undertaking in Albuquerque? I think that's what you see about the two proposals from, from myself and from the mayor. They're about 90% the same, which basically says, let's identify this stuff in APD that's not law enforcement required. In other words, by law doesn't require a person with special training and skills to respond and move that to either a new department or a public health role, whether that's in the fire department or a new agency, we'll figure out. So what that inherently will do is that it will take the budget, for example, from the coast unit, which is the APD unit that deals with homeless, and it will take that budget and those positions and move it to a new agency. So that will defund APD, but it doesn't stop the work. It just puts it in a new role. 
That was reporter Margaret Wright speaking with Albuquerque City Council President Pat Davis. We're diving into the special legislative session where lawmakers are also considering some police reforms and juggling the budget after COVID. Tune in tomorrow at 7 p.m. here on 89.9 KUNF. Looking at my desktop, it's about that time for resources. Hey, if you tuned in on Friday, you know why I am no longer on my phone like that. You can find a full list of the resources we talk about on each episode and opportunities to donate or help online at bit.ly slash ynmg hub. Check out Jeff Proctor's article, It Makes No Sense, covering the rise of COVID-19 cases in state prisons and the governor's response by heading to sfreporter.com. Read and listen to KUNM's continuing coverage of the incident at the Onyate Monument. Head to KUNM.org. And while you're there, check out the coverage of what to expect from the special session. That's KUNM.org. And if you need a refresher on the legislature, find any of the episodes of this show's pre-COVID era to hear our daily updates during the last legislative session. They're over at KUNM.org, or you can find them wherever you find your podcasts. Here is now on Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays on KUNM's Airwaves at 7 p.m. And as always, you can find the show on KUNM.org or subscribe anywhere, anywhere, anywhere you get your podcasts. Your New Mexico government is a collaboration between KUNM, New Mexico PBS, and the Santa Fe Reporter. Funding for our coverage is provided in part by the Thornburg Foundation, the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, the New Mexico Local News Fund, and KUNM listeners like you. Your New Mexico government is executive produced by Marisa DeMarco. Theme music by Pope Yes, Yes, Y'all. It's produced by yours truly. News update by Nash Jones. And we want to thank Margaret Wright for her contribution to the show. And I'm laying down some socially distant high fives and hugs to Nash Jones and Taylor Velasquez for helping to edit the show. I'm Khalil Ecolona. And for everyone here at Your New Mexico government, thanks for listening.